Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. On today's episode of Perpetual Traffic. At every stage of your growth, when things triple, everything breaks. That's when you sort of have to reinvent yourself. And I think part of the entrepreneurial journey is reinventing yourself. And I think Dice's speech yesterday was a great example of that. And talking about the state of affairs right now in digital marketing is that people can't do the same stuff that they've always done. They have to constantly look and, and adapt to change and change their entire business models, maybe in some cases. So, but I remember distinctly finally being able to, like my, my big goal when I started the agency was to pay the healthcare bill. <laughs> and I remember it was like $1,500 a month. And I remember getting my first customer that he paid us $1,800 a month. I was like, I can't believe like I was paying my next expense. It was like, that was a huge victory. It was like victory number one. I remember I came home. I was in tears, told my wife, I was like, I can't believe it. And then I got like my second, third client. I'm like, I can pay the mortgage. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wilders and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is episode 327, and I am actually physically alongside uh, a co-host here who you've probably heard his productive capabilities on this show as the producer of Perpetual Traffic, but maybe you've never actually heard his voice. But I'm sitting in the Scooby-Doo van in the middle of Traffic and Conversion Summit, at, I don't even know what time it is. It's like before everything really starts to get rolling here. And so far, the conference has been amazing. Uh, I am sitting alongside the producer of Perpetual Traffic, Hector Santi Esteban. Nailed it. Nailed it. Excited now, to be here, Ralph. I was concerned I wouldn't pronounce it quite Nailed correct. It. But he is the producer of Perpetual Traffic. We're going to be sort of reversing roles here today because Kasim uh, is off doing some kind of high-level VIP thing. All this success 
being the co-host of Perpetual Traffic, has completely gone to his head. And I think he's probably hanging out with Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart right now, somewhere in the back room, enjoying a bottle of Cristal. So he could not join us this morning, but uh, Hector is going to turn the tables on Perpetual Traffic and ask me some questions on things that have been going on, especially in the last eh, three to 12 months. There's been a lot of changes, and I think the keynote speech over here at Traffic and Conversion Summit was uh, especially relevant to some of the things that you're probably struggling with right now as a perpetual traffic listener, which is traffic, but it's the other side, conversion, which is why Deanne does this and scalable companies do this uh, awesome summit every single year, traffic and conversion. So Hector, I'm turning the reins over to you to run the show. Go for it. I'm excited to be here and and it's an honor. I, I listened to perpetual traffic when I started my first agency digital agency back in the day and so i'm it's an honor to sit in the scooby-doo van with (laughs) with you and be here it really it really is uh, come full circle and were you referencing the the ryan dice talk yesterday yeah killer yeah it was so killer killer. so i don't know if you guys are able to go and still get a hold of that or maybe it's posted somewhere at this point but yeah i think i think one of the things he said was like is it the worst time to be a digital marketer and Mm -hmm. the the hands in the room that went up that felt that way was (laughs) it was i I think it is a, a big turning turning point. So I'm excited to have this conversation because you've been in the game for for a lot longer than I'm sure a lot of people at the convention and the conference here. Some, even me, five, six years. It feels like I've been in it a lot longer than a lot of people. You make me feel still like a newbie. So so I'm excited to have this conversation because I don't think in all of the 300 episodes, 300 plus that we've done, we have done a reverse kind of interview and had you on the hot seat here. So yeah, Ralph, take us back. I'd love for you. I know the the agency was not necessarily like the the first thing on your mind. I mean, I don't know if you grew up wanting to run a digital agency. I, I if I recall, I know that it came at a kind of a crisis moment, mm-hmm. or it was kind of a, a big turning point for you, and it was a solution. So, can you take us back to like what was going on in your life when before you started and why you started the agency? Yeah, yeah, and well, I mean, I think the the story we've mentioned probably here in passing many, many times in professional traffic is that I was fired twice from the corporate world. My wife always says, "Why do you even talk about that?" Well, it's like it's part of the story, and I legitimately was fired from not one job but two jobs. But actually, it's really three jobs. My salad chef job that I got like in the summer of 1988, I was also fired from. But we won't talk about that one. But for right now, but these two big firings were sort of seminal moments in my life. The first time it was, I was sort of caught in this scandal, which ended up being an FDA investigation in the biotech world where I testified for the Food and Drug Administration and got like federal immunity. It's like That's pretty crazy. gnarly. It's like crazy stuff. <clears throat> so and I still can't believe we actually sort of uh, lived through that. But after that, went into real estate and it's something that we've still actually done. Got my general contractor's license between jobs at that point thought I wanted to rehab houses and do flipping houses which is back in the the early 90s was definitely a thing it's still a thing now and uh, did that for two or three years and really got bored with it and then went back to the corporate world sort of admitted defeat after trying to start my first business which was a medical billing business believe it or not like I don't know why medical billing was just such a horrible idea but I started it, completely failed at that, and then went back to the corporate world, worked for a company called Quest Diagnostics for six years as a district sales manager and then ascended to like a regional sales role. Was caught in another Medicare scandal where I was like the Oliver North, the easy fall guy, although it was through no fault of my own, and that ended up being like another Medicare thing. So I'm like, Oh my God, it's like two times now I've gotten fired in these like major scandals with federal and state authorities. I'm like, the corporate world just sucks. I hated working for assholes at Quest and the people that were at the previous company in the biotech world were sort of the same kind of people. And so I really had no choice. I was out of a job and I started learning at that time I had a a website, which is actually still live. We still keep it live. We pay our GoDaddy bills every single year for it, which is uh, called Sales Management Mastery, which was a, a sales management training site. So I figured I, I sort of got into this whole digital marketing thing with the idea like, 
all right, well, I'll do something that was my passion or it was something that was related to what I was actually doing in my job. And after reading, which happened to a lot of people, after reading the book, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, I was sort of amazed that people were making money online. And now it's sort of an overused story. But the point was, is like, that was the seminal moment. I said, well, wait a second. Obviously, I'm in a job I don't really like, but I'll start this other business that's related to my current business, what I was doing, managing salespeople, overseeing large sales teams of 100 salespeople, district sales managers, that kind of stuff. And so I started this sort of side project and Quest found out about it and didn't like it, even though there was a no, there was not a no moonlighting clause in any of the agreements that we had, but they figured out a way over a year and sort of pegged this Medicare scandal back on me to get me out of the organization. And I ended up getting fired and got, got a severance package, which I had to battle for. And that kept me afloat for about a month or two. And my wife was like, well, what are you kind of going to do for work now? Like, we need money coming in. You don't have a job. We don't have health insurance. So I said, well, I'll make the sales management mastery site a go. And I ended up launching it, spending tens, $10,000 or so on web mastering and PPC and learning pay-per-click, Google pay-per-click. And in my launch, precisely two people bought and I realized that it wasn't necessarily a, it's a lesson I've always sort of learned. It's like, don't build a business without at least figuring out whether people will buy the stuff that you're going to sell them first. I made that big mistake. I sort of assumed, because I had built this list, that people would buy what I had. And they ended up not buying what I had. And that business completely failed. But what I did realize is that I loved marketing online. It wasn't necessarily the content, but I loved pay-per-click. I loved CRO, which is landing page optimization. I loved like the whole idea of marketing online. And as a result of that, I said, well, I have a, a product that nobody wants, but there's this other thing called the affiliate marketing world where there are products that people want. So I learned all that sort of from scratch. And that's sort of how I learned digital marketing. And this is back in you know, 2009, 2010, after learning a lot of the stuff prior to that point, the five years prior. And that eventually turned into in 2010, 2011, into doing work for actual businesses, using those same skills to market, use advertising, use pay-per-click specifically. Discovered Facebook in 2010, 2009, 2010, when all of a sudden the right-hand rail ads were the only thing. And then obviously in 2012, 2013, ads went into the newsfeed and I started doing it for customers. And then that basically launched the entire agency and we've been doing it ever since. I think you have the, the archetypal story of, I don't know, almost everybody here, I would imagine, at Trafficking Conversion. I mean, the digital marketer seems to have this kind of I mean, this hero's journey where they're thrown into this jungle for a variety of reasons. They have a kid, they you lose their job, whatever it is, and mm. then find digital marketing and, and, and you just, you worked it. The next question that I think is really relevant is, okay, so now you started the agency and you're like, all right, well, we're seven figures. We're going to do eight figures next year. Let's take a, a bird's eye view of the, the stages of that, because mm. I think there are, are a, a variety of stages that agency owners go. You had to find your way. And I think that that's obviously one part. If you've landed on building an agency and, and, and going out and looking for clients and businesses to serve, there's a variety of different levels, even within that lane. What were the stages for you? And talk about talk about that progression. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of clear. I almost look at it in multiples of three or the stages for us. I mean, when I first started 2010, 2011, it was me and, and that VA is actually still with me. Trish is still, if you're listening, she's still with me to this day. And then the next stage was, well, the first stage really for me was getting somebody to help out, which she was already helping me out with the affiliate side. Then I needed more help. And then I remember when I had actually three people, it was Trish and two other people. And that was our first group. I had three people that were working for me, employees, that kind of thing. And then it was nine. And then it was 
27. And then it was now 60 plus. And it's every stage of growth. And I forget who actually said this. I think it was the CEO of Rakuten, Rakuten, I always pronounce it incorrectly. But at every stage of your growth, when things triple, everything breaks. That's when you sort of have to reinvent yourself. And I think part of the entrepreneurial journey is reinventing yourself. And I think Dice's speech yesterday was a great example of that and talking about the state of affairs right now in digital marketing is that people can't do the same stuff that they've always done. They have to constantly look and, and adapt to change and change their entire business models, maybe in some cases. So, but I remember distinctly finally being able to, like my, my big goal when I started the agency was to pay the healthcare bill. <laughs> and I remember it was like $1,500 a month. And I remember getting my first customer that he paid us $1,800 a month. I was like, I can't believe like I was paying my next expense. It was like, that was a huge victory. It was like victory number one. I remember I came home, I was in tears, told my wife, I was like, I can't believe it. And then I got like my second, third client. I'm like, I can pay the mortgage. And she was like, this is great. So the, <laughs> the unfair advantage I had, I think, versus a lot of people that are first starting is that you had a sales uh, background. I had a sales background, which really did help. I could market myself. I still am fairly good at that. Obviously it's the thing that I love to do. Sales and marketing for me is like, there's, there's blurred lines between the two, but anyway, it's persuasion at the mm -hmm. end of the day. One is online and one is face to face or on a zoom call. But I had the strong backing of my wife, who fortunately in our lives, like when I was doing well in the corporate world, making lots of money, like I was making tons of money, corporate expense accounts and company cars and traveling and everything. Her business wasn't doing all that well. But when mine all of a sudden took a nosedive, hers started to really survive. So I think having a spouse and having somebody in your corner that you can really rely on, and in her case, it was... Like I could afford to do the entrepreneurial journey. I could afford to do it. It wasn't like we had tons of money in the bank, but she was making money enough to support me. And my big goal after being able to pay the healthcare, pay the mortgage was then support the family. So in that very much aligned itself with that three, that, that growth of threes. So it was three people, nine people. When I got nine people, I could finally support the family. We are now a six-figure business. When I was at 100K in revenue, I was like, the next goal is a million. Next goal, no, actually, it was 100K. Was, next goal was 300,000. Then the next goal was a million. And then after a million, it was three million. And it just keeps going on and on from there. And at every stage of the journey, everything kind of breaks and you have to redo things. But I distinctly remember very early on having that support and then getting to the level of revenue and enjoyment of the job where I could finally support the family. And I didn't feel like I was a drain on her. And to this day, it's like, I'm just eternally indebted to her. And she always like says, Jesus, like we support each other. That's what marriages are for. But I think having that kind of person in your, in your background and in your corner is super important. Yeah. Know? Yeah, Totally. I can relate on a ton of levels, but this isn't about me. I'm like, is he telling my story? Or is he telling your story? <laughs> it's fantastic. And it, whether that is a spouse or if you're younger, maybe it's a parent mm -hmm. or, or, or a friend or a roommate, right? I mean, I think having someone in your corner, this show is great because we really deliver the tactics. And I think what you've talked about though, is that outside of all the tactics, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to keep the, the personal engine running to give you enough runway to get the business to where it needs to be to pay the bills or sustain the family or whatever that, you know, next milestone is. Yeah. So what else that we, we touched on having someone in your corner. I think that's probably a, a great nugget of wisdom. What other things, whether it be tactical in the business or even personal, what other things do you look back on and saying that that made a difference or that really helped, especially in the long term, looking mm. back over the, the you know, I guess I'm at a decade decade plus really yeah i mean for for me i think that another big three things like i just sort of think in threes oftentimes is having a sales engine having a way in which to bring in new business a, a tried and true way in which to do that we figured that out sort of at a very early stage also like once you actually bring in that business then you have to fulfill on it 
So what do you do? Do you, when you bring in that business, and I think agency owners struggle with this a lot, is like when you bring in that business, do you have, is it just you that's going to do it? Or are you going to plan for hiring other people to do what you used to do? But then a stage in between of that is, well, if you're not going to do it, then you're going to need some kind of manual or SOP or some kind of guideline, some kind of roadmap for them to do the job that you used to do. So if I look at sort of the three pillars of like our success is having a sales engine, having a way in which to bring in business, but then also documenting all your processes, really important. And then last but not least, once you have those documented processes, and this could be either two or three, is hiring right. And one of the things that I did learn in the sales and, and uh, sales management world was to learn how to hire people. But hiring online as a virtual organization is a completely different thing than hiring face-to-face. -face. So I do think those three things are really, really important. You can do as an agency owner, you can actually get the sales engine working and then hire people. And when you hire those people, then you can have them create the processes. I did it actually differently. I got the sales engine working. I started to document all the processes and then I hired people to just follow and refine the stuff that I had documented. And I remember there was somebody that you and I both know. He, he told me in one of my first war rooms when I could barely afford war room, I think I had like $11,000 in my checking account and I wrote a check to war room for like $10,000 to get in. Like that was, like I could barely afford it. But he said, you've got a completely unscalable business because it's all in your head. And I said, well, at that point in time, there was no such thing as a Facebook ad agency, really. I mean, now it's like everyone, like thousands of them, you know what I mean? So, but I said, well, that's a challenge that I, I want to, that's a gauntlet now that's being laid down for me here. And I read a book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. And he goes through how surgical processes like open heart surgery and building a skyscraper and pilots, all these pilots right. like pilot checklists, like all this stuff can be documented through checklists and through SOPs. How do you build a skyscraper? Well, you don't just say, Hey guys, go build it. Well, there's a process to it. How do you do open heart surgery? Well, there's a process, there's a checklist for it. So I realized Facebook ads at that point, which was all that we really did. We do a lot more now was a process like anything else. So I created those processes and we still use those same SOPs and checklists to this day and train all our new people on those. Wait, here's a, a personal question that I think a lot of, I'd imagine a lot of people struggle with is I've heard it called expert systems, right? Cause it's right. How do you get your, your process? How do you get your thinking out into a checklist? What, what advice or what, what has helped with, translating what you do well all of a sudden into you know a series of steps because mm -hmm. i think i know i've struggled with that kind of translation and so i'd imagine that other people would would struggle and also maybe you can speak to the time that it takes right i heard someone i don't know, i should know their name to give them credit but they said that you should be willing to invest something like 50 hours of time into teaching someone because if you're spending an hour a week on it or an hour a day on it, that it, that's 360 hours, right? It's not just mm -hmm. one hour. So yep. what, what about that process of taking your expertise and now turning it into a checklist that someone who maybe isn't as experienced or maybe isn't as quote unquote good can still execute? Yeah. I mean, the only way that I did it is, and I still instruct, like we have an agency group, which we instruct agency owners on how to do this very thing, even though we do give them checklist that we have used uh, is while you're doing the thing that you no longer want to do or you want to have somebody else do it, just either videotape yourself doing it, which is easier to do. I didn't do it that way. I wrote it all down. So all I did is we just created like Google Docs and I said, all right, you do this first, do this. And as I'm doing it, I would just type in what I'm doing. And I would usually do a video with it. We ended up realizing all the processes that, that I was doing and the things, how I was running ads and how I was optimizing ads and anybody could learn it. And in, in effect, I, I also realized that in hiring new people, I wanted to hire people that weren't just clones of me. 
they were actually people that were better in other areas. Like, I can do a lot of things really pretty well. It's not like one thing I do great. So we realized quickly, this maybe in the on the mid 2010s, that precision and just data what stage analysis. of employees was that at? How many employees were you? At? We we're probably at about anywhere between nine to fifteen, I would guess. And that's when you realized you you were taking yourself out of that even more, and yeah. Putting in people who were experts in those individual lanes. Yeah, I think at about nine people, I realized that. I could actually get out of the day-to-day, still oversee things and still give advice, but not have to do the daily tactical things. And they were following the checklist that I had created. But what I was also doing is I had a bunch of really good people that we had hired. And I was like, well, as you're doing it, improve on these checklists, improve on the processes, you know, and create new ones. And that was sort of a big breakthrough for me, when I first started, it's like you just start. Like, how do you take all this knowledge that's in your head, what's going to be 360 hours or whatever it happens to be? Like, how do you start doing it? You just start doing it. The journey of a thousand miles was begins with the first step, I guess. Point is, it's like you just start doing it, and then you hire people that do what you taught them, but then improve on it, and then they refine the checklists and the SOPs so that. Now you're creating a uniform delivery of results for customers, which is at the end of the day, what you're trying to do as an agency. So, so you had getting the sales engine, which you talked about, and then hiring the right people. Was there a third one that, that we didn't go into a ton? Yeah. I mean, hiring the right people and creating processes are almost interchangeable because you can do the two together. I chose to do the process creation first and then hire people and then go back and refine that that process. The hiring side is an interesting one because whenever we hire for tier 11, we take people through a pretty rigorous screening process. And I think that's an important part is that we had to get very, very clear on the type of person that we wanted to hire. And it started off with three characteristics. Now it's sort of five characteristics that we look for, these core, core values that we call them. And so our, our hiring is really is a good hiring system. It has screening in it with screen shares and videos and quizzes that they have to take and goes all the way through before they even get to the point where, all right, we might consider taking them to the next step, which is yet another sort of video kind of quiz. And then the third step, which is an actual interview, which might be one, two or three interviews. And then uh, once they're actually given the, the, the job role or given the job title or given a job offer, then they're really in sort of a 30, 60, 90 day period where we're really evaluating them and being very, very close with them to learn all our processes and all the things that are doing, creating results for our customers, and then ultimately figuring out whether they're a long-term fit. And in most cases, our, our screening is pretty good so that once they come out the other end, they're ready to roll. Yeah. You mentioned that Hiring in person is different than hiring virtually. And we just recently brought someone onto our team for our, our podcast agency. And it was like, why, at first glance, why am I going to hop on a Zoom call with them right away? Like, that's, it's not really like how I've interviewed. I was, I had a sales background as well. And we would recruit for salespeople and hire salespeople. And the way that people interviewed and the way that they perform are two totally, you know, you, someone can say anything, but sure. how they're going to, work especially remotely digitally virtually is a totally different thing so is there anything else that you can expand on when it comes to bringing on the right people and and maybe you can you can speak to it coming from that perspective of someone who's maybe done a lot of hiring in person Mm -hmm. and what what it looks like differently virtually you talked about screen shares and different quizzes and stuff like that so what sort of things do you have them do before you actually even talk to them yeah, like for hiring an ads manager, which ultimately becomes a media buyer for us, which is probably the process that's most refined, is they click the, the job opening on the Tier 11 site, and then it opens up an application. So the application has a series of questions in it. The first seven or eight are really to just l- to determine their level of competence. Right. Do they understand what they're going to be doing? In this case, a media buyer, ads manager. Uh, so it's questions about either Facebook, Google, that kind of stuff. So, and then I think the eighth or ninth question is 
shoot a short five minute or less, which is very important, uh, loom video or just screen capture video that walks through and you can blur out like whatever you need to in case there's confidentiality that walks through like how you were able to take a campaign that wasn't doing so well and how you were able to turn it around, show us your thinking. And that's the first screen. So they can answer all the questions right. And they're graded on all the questions too. And then the video itself. So there's eight, 10 questions. I forget how many, because we sort of add some and subtract some others every now and then they're given an overall score as to how they scored on the application. And if they're below a certain percentage, we immediately screen them out. But the real determining factor is their account walkthrough. It's about, we're trying to screen for two really important things, which are so vital. I'm actually reading this book by Adam Grant right now, which hits home on this is we're screening for humble and hungry. It's the two of the five characteristics that we really look for, especially early on. It's like, how hungry are they to figure out stuff on their own? How hungry are they to achieve a certain level of success? And how humble are they to realize that they don't have all the answers? Because this shit's hard. Like, there's constant challenges all the time in media buying in this particular case as we're screening for a media buyer. So in that five-minute video, we take us through something that didn't work, you thought would work, but how did you turn it around not necessarily successfully, but show us your thinking. And so the thinking then screens out for emotional IQ, which is what we call smart. And then there's a couple of other things that we sort of look for, which is precision and also GSD, which is get shit done. So those are sort of our five characteristics. And in that video, you can deduce based upon their language, based upon how they put it all together, based upon whether or not this is a person that hits those five core values for tier 11 and it's incredibly powerful so if they score above the passing grade and their video is good i don't care what their cv looks like they go to the next phase they're invited back to do the second screen capture which is to go through five different scenarios show us your thinking once again how would you, it's an e-commerce store that has a CPA goal of 50, but the click-through rate is this, and the cost per click is this, and the conversion rate on the page. How would you solve that? What would be your recommendations? Take us through one, two, three, and then there's a scenario two, scenario three, scenario four. So we're doing the thing that I think all resumes don't do, which is show, don't tell. I don't give a crap what your resume looks like. The CV helps. Don't, don't get me wrong, but having done thousands of interviews with salespeople and not that salespeople are deceptive, but salespeople tend to exaggerate the truth a bit. I think that's one of the things that we really are, our, our bullshit meter is pretty high with tier 11. So once they pass those two and with flying colors and they get a good grade, then they're, they're ready for that first interview. So we've now screened out probably a hundred applicants and then the hiring manager gets one interview, maybe two, maybe three. And by the time they maybe get to me, sometimes I do the final interview, sometimes I don't, they're pretty good to go. So as a result, our team is like, we have hired dozens of people this year. And I think we've let one person go because they were just a mistake. They were just a bad, a bad match for us. But I attribute it back to that hiring process. And our former uh, VP of ops helped create it because it's a show me, don't tell me world. And I think right now you really do need to do that because most people are virtual. You can't look at them eye to eye. And even that you're going to get some deception. So that's our process. And it works really, really well. Yeah, it's beautiful. It seems like the, I think Michael, is it Drucker? The, I read a book by him. I think it's Michael Drucker about giving VAs interviews through tasks, giving them yeah. or, 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 like you said, it's just the show, not tell kind of concept. So what, what else, Ralph? Because now you're in a place where I think what, what I really appreciate, at least personally, is that you're able to come down into the world of digital marketers, agency owners. And frankly, it's not a world that you're probably living in on a, on a day to day kind of basis. It seems like you're from where at you're at and you're running your business, you're thinking, much much higher level in terms of operating and running a business mm -hmm. but 
it seems like you really stay on the cutting edge of what's happening um, in the in the space and in, 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 in the world. So what what's important for digital marketers, agency owners to be thinking about doing or knowing with with the big changes with iOS changes and ad spend going up, all the things that are happening. In the, in the digital market. Yeah, I, I think I think the job of any business owner, any good business owner that wants to continue to scale and grow is to be able to see a, a bit higher into the, like, come out of the trees and look forest for the trees and all that sort of stuff, but have a much broader view of, like, what's happening in the entire marketing universe as opposed to just what's happening day to day. So I still love the tactical day-to-day stuff. I mean, if I could grow Cheer 11 and still run ads for customers, I would. I still do love it. When I go in and fiddle around with our like Cheer 11 ads, like it's a lot of fun. I still enjoy it. But I realize that's not the best use of my time, and plus I'm probably not the best person at it now, which is great, because that was the whole goal of building this thing, is to hire people smarter and better than me. Not necessarily just little Ralph clones. That would be pretty horrible by the way but the point is is my job is to be able to see the future a bit unfortunately in late 2019 or so we realized that a lot of this privacy stuff was going to be coming down the line and we knew that in 2020 especially there was going to be something that was going to happen with ios we knew that privacy issues were becoming more and more of an issue we knew that a lot of the things from a tracking and from a an audience standpoint, from an interest-based standpoint inside Facebook, all these things that make the platform so powerful weren't going to be as powerful anymore. And so we consciously shifted, and I wish we had done it earlier, but in retrospect, we actually did it pretty early. Instead of relying on traffic tricks, traffic hacks, we started looking at holistically what a marketers really need, and it's not just more traffic. It's really, it's some of the fundamentals that Dice talked about yesterday, which is copywriting and avatar research and understanding really what is the pains of your, of your target market, what are their goals, what are their desires, understanding that really deeply. So investing very heavily in research, creative messaging, but also looking at everything that's post-click and as an advertiser, we look at sort of things like, hey, we're going to run ads and we're going to run all this paid traffic to an offer and to your sales page, but everything after the click is pretty much you. And I think most agency owners look at it that way. We started to shift that in 2019, and uh, we now have an entire after the click division, which we call conversion architecture, which I anticipate is probably going to be 50% or more of our entire revenue inside of a year. But alongside that, making our front-facing ads even more immersive, more deeper into the avatar, deeper into you know the pains and desires of the market. So instead of having a payroll where 70% was media buying, maybe two, three years ago, we're now 50% media buying, 30-40% creative team. So investing in creative, investing in messaging, and then building out this entire conversion architecture division. And that's fundamentally shifted. So now we're in a position where we feel very strong, whereas if we were just running paid traffic and that was it, with all this iOS stuff and the stuff coming down from Chrome and the flock update on Google... We'd be in a really weak position, but we really feel we're in a very strong position right now, even with less and less visibility with all the things that are going on. So we, we shifted that way, and I think Dice talked about it yesterday. He's like, he who writes the best ad copy still wins. He who does the research still wins. He who really gets in the mind of the consumer, of the target market, wins. And none of that, it really has changed per se, but I do think because Facebook, Instagram, Google have become so smart, the algorithms have become smart, we as marketers have gotten lazy on all that stuff. I think it's now is the time to double down on back on it. And if you're an agency owner that's not doing that, you're making a big mistake. 
And that means investing in resources, which we've we've already, I think we need improvement in all areas. I'm not sitting here and saying like we figured it all out, but the point is that's where the puck is going. And I, and I think business owners and agency owners really need to start thinking differently about just not traffic, but traffic, how it relates to avatars and also how that traffic converts. I love it. Guys, we're going to, spur of the moment here, we're going to try a, a new segment that I just had the idea that we're going to do. Uh, it's called Headlines, and I think it's uh, it's something that we're going to do. We're going to get he- Ralph's take on just some digital marketing, Facebook ads, traffic headlines that are coming up in the news. So we'll get into that right after this break. Hey, it's Kasim here, and I have a question for you. What if you could legally get the emails of almost every person who visits your website? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but seriously, what if you could safely and respectfully target your website visitors via email just by dropping a pixel onto your site? It might sound too good to be true, but our new sponsors at getemails.com can do just that. They've created a system that's compliant with U.S. laws and regulations, and every email address they send you is opted in to receive emails. That means you can connect your anonymous website visitors to real people and then safely retarget them through email with real-time, fully compliant interactions. I've personally met the CEO, Adam Robinson, and the guy is absolutely brilliant. And he believes in his product so much that he's willing to do something a little crazy for PT listeners. If you are an e-commerce brand that's doing over a million in annual revenue and you've gone through their easy 30-minute onboarding process, if you don't 5X your investment within the first six months, they will give you all of your money back. To take advantage of this offer, go to getemails.com forward slash scalable. That's getemails.com forward slash scalable. Hey, PT listeners, when's the last time your business published on its blog? If the answer is that's way too long for me to remember, I want you to listen up because our friends at BKA Content have a new service where they'll deliver fresh blogs to your inbox and all you have to do is just post them on your site. Now, these articles are all originally written just for your business. They're not generic articles that are just copy and pasted or thrown into some AI software or written by a VA. No, these are professional writers who are going to sit down and write articles just for your business. We've used them in the past, and they're absolutely fabulous. Now, if you want an extra reason to go try them yourself, BK is giving PT listeners half off their first month. Just go to bkacontent.com forward slash perpetual to get started. That's bkacontent.com forward slash perpetual. All right, guys, we are back and we are here on our first segment here of headlines. And I'm excited because I don't I don't think that you guys can hear the music in the background, but traffic and conversion is about to get started and uh, it is it is pumping there. They're pumping and we are here in the, in the Scooby-Doo van back and and ready. So I typed in uh, to the good old Googler, find some 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 headlines. And the first one that came up was Forbes recently stunning new iPhone privacy features to beat Facebook. So what's interesting is that Apple and Facebook are kind of in this, that not so private battle anymore. How do you see this playing out between these two giants? I think you follow the money, really. is Apple is not doing this to protect your privacy, and I am air quoting that. It's a very convenient marketing pitch that is working quite well. Uh, you see the TV ads with the guy that's being followed around at the coffee store or the coffee shop, and then he goes to the bookstore, and people are overlooking his shoulder, and then he finally gets home, and he sees the ATT prompt, and boom, 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 all of them disappear. Like, it's great marketing. But Apple still has all that data. And what do you think they're going to do with it? Like, what would you do with it if you knew that I don't even know what the revenues of Facebook are. I should probably know this off the top of my head. Let's say it's a, it's billions. 99% of it comes from advertising revenue. Apple is a publicly traded company, the most valuable company in the world, but they still have to satisfy shareholders. So all I do is I think, follow the money. Like Tim Cook, as deceptive as he is on this whole privacy thing, he's just a pawn of Wall Street, really. That's all he is. Like, he's trying to produce better growth earnings. 
boost the stock price, satisfy shareholders. I get it. I was in the corporate world too at all. People really cared about the list of cells, their self-preservation. Tim Cook is just self-preserving himself because he's going to create a major ad market for Apple. And they've already started to see it. We started to see it in like the podcast space. We started to see it all around. The point is, is like all that data for privacy is then going to be used for advertising. So that's what Apple's big plan is. And they just want to, they see what Facebook's doing and they see how lucrative the ad market is and they want their piece of the pie. And what I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me if they weren't so disingenuous about it, but it's, it's like, and, and I'll be the first one to admit I'm an agency owner. I'll be the first one to be on the Apple ad platform. Like, why wouldn't we? You know, I'm sure it's going to be killer, but that's just, just bugs me. Like, I just, I know the almighty dollar, like, rules so much, but come on, guys. Like, we know what's going on here. It's funny. It seems like it's not, they're not doing a good job of making it as discreet as they thought it would be. Because this came up on Business Lunch. Roland was just talking about, they're, they're saying they're, they're doing it for privacy, but they'll protect you from everyone that. They need protection from pretty much. They're doing it in their best interest. For sure. And and Google is sitting there, I think, kind of smiling because they're sitting back watching them duke it out. And they've they've basically done what Apple's already done on their Android system. Absolutely. I mean and no one and I think no no one is up in arms anymore. I think they were before, but not anymore. Everyone's kinda gotten over it. Another one in the Search Engine Journal, uh, it says Google Ads is not for small business anymore. And they go on to say, here's why. What do you think about that that headline? I think Kasim is actually has a really good answer to this, is that with the Flock update, is it makes the small business owner and their Google Ads less effective as a result. So a large advertiser like Solutions 8 they're not going to be as affected by it because they have lots and lots and lots of data. So this aggregation of interest together as opposed to real interest being targeted on Google for search really does affect, it's going to absolutely affect the small business owner. It's going to make their targeting a whole lot less relevant. It's the same thing with Facebook with the ATT prompt is that the small businesses and Facebook came out against this and this was sort of their PR strategy. It's like, this is hurting the small business owner. It does hurt the small business owner. Like unless you're running hundreds of millions of dollars of ads or tens of millions of dollars of ads or even millions of dollars of ads. Like if you're running a hundred bucks a day as a local business owner, you need more and more data in order for the algorithm to really do its work. And it's the same thing with Google and the flock update is going to, it is going to affect small business owners. I really do believe that, which is unfortunate. I love it. Well, I, I, I don't love that. I'm just loving this, these answers and this perspective because I think it's so cool to, for listeners to get something a little different, especially from you, uh, Ralph. Last one. Paid influencers. This is from, from Reuters. Reuters? 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 Yeah. I've, I don't know. Yeah. I've seen them around. <laughs> Shout out to, to, to the Reuters. Paid influencers must label posts as ads, German court rules. Um, and I know that we did a, a show with Angela from your team recently mm-hmm. on kind of influencer marketing ads. And it seems like legislation is getting involved with, with these kinds of things. Where do you see... It's kind of like the wild, wild west, I feel, right now with, yeah. with that. How do you see that playing out? And, and what advice can you give someone who's, who's wanting traditionally... Influencer marketing wasn't paired with paid advertising. They were kind of separate. But now they've kind of un- unleashed this this Frankenstein, I think. So so what, what words of advice would you give to an agency owner who's kind of looking to get into that space and, and kind of start mixing that two, those two? I don't mind the idea of an influencer having a disclosure. It's like there was something that we always used to say in, when I was a, in the pharmaceutical world is that fair balance sells more. If you tell it, if you wanted to, like, this is what I used to do. I used to walk into doctor's offices and pitch them on Imitrex or Zantac or whatever it was. And if all the news was good and there was no downside, they were less likely to prescribe. And there was studies that were done by this. So 
the company that I worked for at that point in time, which was Glaxo Welcome, they started saying, no, we need to start giving fair balance because it's the right thing to do. Fair balance basically is, all right, doctor, imatrexes, blah, 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 all these benefits. You have to watch out for it here. And this might happen here. So it's something that you need to be aware of. What they found in those studies, the doctors prescribed more. The ironic part of telling the truth. The ironic part of telling the truth, the sales and marketing end of telling the truth. So from my perspective, it's like if it, if you, everything looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. So from influencer marketing, I love it when people say, hey, I am a paid sponsor on this, but I really actually do believe like you can do it. Like when we're doing our ads, like I'll say right out, like I use these guys. Like, is that influencer marketing i suppose through our advertising yeah like if i say i don't use them i'm not saying i'm not endorsing it i do think that an influencer should say at one point in time like i'm a paid sponsor for these guys but regardless i mean i use them and this is great and this is the reason why but then also the downside of pitching too much is that if you don't tell them sort of the little side effect that might happen and like you might want to watch out for it here and if you're this type of person i wouldn't use it but overall because i like it and i've used it here you end up selling more and you're far more effective and you come off as far more credible yeah how interesting that's that's great advice especially even for for influencers or someone who's running the campaign to say it's okay to be honest or to allow that honesty does work ralph outside of the the floor of traffic and conversion and at the exhibition hall Good luck tracking them down, though. But where can people stay up to date, stay tuned? Obviously, you guys can subscribe here. Go to perpetualtraffic.com and say, get subscribed to all the podcasts. Is there any place to stay updated with you or to know the happenings of Ralph? Or do they just need to tune into the show every week? I think the show is a good place to start. You can follow me on Twitter. It's Ralph HB. And if they want help with from you, especially from your agency, where do they go for that? I mean, tier11.com, you can uh, click the big pink work with us button. Can't miss it. There's an application you fill out. Yeah, you end up talking to our uh, very solid and friendly and non-high-pressure sales team. And we'll tell you whether or not we can work with you or not. Or if we can't, we'll tell you that and we'll recommend a resource. If you can, we take to the next step and we do a full deep dive analysis on everything that you're doing in your business and figure out whether or not we can you know, take you to that next level and unleash your online potential, which is what it's all about. I love it. And if you guys are, I would encourage you to go listen to some of the previous episodes with some of the tier 11 team there. There's some great episodes that give you some, some really hands-on training and there's a a deep dive into, you know, what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and how they're helping clients. So there's one with, with Will, another one with Angela and some great episodes. So this is kind of caps off that and is, is a great cap off. Anything else? Ralph, that hasn't been said today that you want to make sure it gets in on this episode? No, this has been a lot of fun. I'm not I'm not used to completely talking about myself on this show. So Well, you don't suck at it. So yeah. yeah. One I had a, a an old mentor of mine. I was about to give a, a talk at a, a sales kind of conference for our company. And right before I went on, he just looked at me and he said, Don't suck. And I said, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I, I think. And that is that is my uh, that's what I try and do most times when I when I get on stage and and so Ralph today you did not suck I appreciate that my father used to say the same thing of God rest his soul he used to say just be yourself you heard it guys just be yourself and we will see you guys on the next week perpetual traffic you've been listening to perpetual traffic for more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast thank you for listening.